Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. New series today called The Way of Love. We're picking up in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back of the room. You can slide out now and grab one of those and return to your seat. Uh, Nobody will notice or pay attention to that. That's no problem. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you may have heard before. If you've ever been to a wedding, uh, you probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 read. Uh, If you're on Instagram, no doubt you've seen 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, somewhere uh, on your feed. It is a chapter that is about love. Uh, We have uh, in our culture, in our day and age, a strange relationship with love. Uh, We love love. We, uh, it is the subject of thousands and thousands of pop songs, starting from some, something, the Beatles, to I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton, uh, to That's What Love Is For, most recently, Justin Bieber's heartfelt, heartfelt song for his wife. It's marketing campaigns center on love. We talk about it all the time. And yet, seemingly, we can seldom agree on what exactly love is. Can you love someone and still disagree with them? Is love a wholesale and wholesale acceptance the same thing? To further complicate it, just our English language doesn't really help us. Because we love tacos, and I love my wife. We love our kids, we love God. We also love the newest season of Ted Lasso so far. We love the good old days. We love Apple products. Or maybe some of us love PC. We use love in a variety of ways with a wide range of meanings, which just leads us to the question, when we talk about love, what are we actually talking about? 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth that he founded, started. And this church is in a bit of a mess, in part because the city of Corinth was a wild place full of pagan worship, rampant sexual immorality, excess to the max. 1 Corinthians is one of several letters that Paul wrote to this church to try to help them get back on track. We have two of those letters preserved for us in the Scripture We know of at least one more that we don't have. And really, Paul is writing this letter to address a discipleship issue. Now, here at Mercy Hill, we say something like this often. A disciple is a lifelong apprentice of Jesus who's learning to live in a way that Jesus modeled for us and commanded his followers to live. We'll talk about a variety of characteristics One of those is a worshiper, that every disciple is a worshiper who says, Jesus is Lord. One of those is a servant, that every disciple says, others come first. One of those is a missionary, that every disciple says, I am sent. And the church at Corinth is so shaped by their surrounding culture that they are struggling to follow Jesus as disciples. Excessiveness, divisions, sexual immorality, They're confused about how to relate to their pagan neighbors and friends. They want to know if they can go to religious activities from pagans and if they can participate. 
But mainly, this church is divided because of arrogance and pride. They have problems with being disciples who are worshipers and missionaries, but their main problem is this aspect of being a disciple that says, others come first. That's led to classism in their church, where rich people are treated differently than the poor. It's led to the exclusion of certain people from their church. It's led to the willingness for them to overlook sin of powerful people in their church. And even this pride and arrogance has crept into their worship services. So people exercising spiritual gifts and their talents in the church have become not about God, but about themselves. They are preaching for praise, speaking in tongues to impress, and these folks can't even observe communion together without getting all twisted. In other words, it's not much different than our day and time, right? right? I mean, the difference is we smile in person, but then express our divisions on social media. And that makes us somehow more civilized or more advanced. And so in this ending section of the letter, chapters 11 through 14, Paul's addressing particularly how they gather for worship. And his single argument is really simple. When we gather for worship, it's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about you getting attention. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your pride. It is about Jesus. And so this chapter, chapter 13, in the middle of this section about the gathered church is important for us. While we might not be tempted by pagan sacrifices or speaking in tongues to draw attention to ourselves, we are tempted to make church about us. Tempted to demand our own way, tempted to see people as a means to an end, tempted to use even church to puff up our own pride. Tempted often to believe that church is just a service provider and we're the customer and the customer always comes first. So how do we combat this temptation to make it about us? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. So what Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, he says, I gain nothing. This passage is famous for a variety of reasons, but at least in part because of the beauty of this opening section. He uses this literary technique where he repeats the same sentence structure over and over again. If blank, but I have not love, then blank. And so he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, if I have prophetic powers, deep understanding of the faith that can move mountains, of generosity and even personal sacrifices. And yet he says, if I don't have love, that is, Paul says, nothing. It amounts to nothing. In other words, what he's saying in these three verses is that love is what gives meaning and purpose to our lives and to our churches. Or maybe we could summarize it this way. Love is vital to a healthy, vibrant church. In fact, 
the primary characteristic a church should have is love. Now, perhaps this is a shock for some of us today. You're like, love? That's what makes a church vibrant? That's what makes it dynamic? That's what makes it energetic? That's what makes it active and attractive and animated? Perhaps love never entered on your radar when you were trying to find a church. Maybe you thought of categories like, was it an engaging worship experience with all the bells and whistles? If you were looking for all the bells and whistles, you probably didn't settle here, right? Is it a church that serves its community? Is it motivated? A church, is she motivated by justice and mercy? Is it a church that's highly programmed, that's always got something going on? They got great kids' activities and the students always busy. Is it a church full of young people? And all of those things are perhaps important, but Paul says the real key to a vibrant, healthy church is not its programs or what sort of worship style it has. The real key, he says, is love. Is it a church where the people love one another? Or as N.T. Wright says, Paul insists that this love is essential for Christian living, especially for communal Christian living and its shared worship. Do you hear what he just said? Essential for you to follow Jesus is to be a person marked by love. Essential for our church to gather together and be a healthy body. It's essential to that is for us to love each other. So love is vital to a healthy and vibrant church. It is like uh, our vital organs. Now, I'm not good at um, biology. Some of you are like, we know that. But I do know that you have a handful of organs in your body that are vital. And if you experience a sickness or an injury, some sort of inf infection around your heart or your lungs or your brain or your kidneys or your liver, chances are recovery does not look good. Vital, they are essential to your existence. And just like our vital organs, Paul is making the argument here that love is that vital for a church. For a church to be healthy, to continue to exist, and vital for a church to be vibrant, full of life. And so it is our love for each other that helps us combat this it's all about me attitude. It's our love for each other that prevents us from making the stage in this room a place of show. It is our love for each other that keeps us from putting our preferences above other people. It is our love. Now, I mentioned earlier that in English we only have one word for love. Perhaps we have two. Affection maybe gets kind of close. In the Greek, there's actually four words for love. Eros, which is an appetite or desire craving sort of love. Maybe about the way I would describe tacos del chavo. And they're delicious tacos that some days it's just like, I can't get enough. I need more. Of course, this is where we get our word erotic from. But in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily limited to just sex or romantic love. It's about desire. There's storge, which is a familial kind of family love. 
There's phileo, which is friendship or brotherly love, like Philadelphia. And then there's agape, which is unconditional love, an others-centered love. That is the opposite, really, of eros, which focuses on what I am getting. This sort of love focuses on what I'm giving, how I am sacrificing for others. It is focused on the object of its affection, not itself. This is the steadfast love of God that we talk about. Or sometimes we use this phrase, unconditional love of God. And the word used in this text is agape. Meaning what Paul is saying is not just any random definition of love is vital to the life of the church. But what's vital is this unconditional love, this love that puts others before itself, or this love that is centered on its object, not on receiving, but on giving. And this is the type of love that was missing from the Corinthian church. They had exciting worship services. Y'all, Jerry Springer style exciting worship services. It's reality TV at its best in Corinth. But people didn't leave thinking about God's unconditional love for them. I mean, they had exciting lives. Corinth was an exciting city. But they were not marked by a deep and selfless concern for each other. They didn't gather together saying, others come first. They gathered gathered together saying, how can I be first? And so Paul then gives some specific examples of how they were doing this. Verse 1, he says, if I speak in the tongues of angels and men. Now, speaking in tongues had been a flashpoint of conflict in the Corinthian church. Speaking in tongues has been controversial in the church all the way since the first century. But the major issue in Corinth isn't that people are necessarily speaking in tongues in the worship gathering, but that they are doing it in order to draw attention to themselves. That it is creating a chaotic mess. And Paul's saying love, this agape love, is vital. Because when we gather together with God's people, we're not here for attention-seeking. We're here to love, to love God and to love others. He's saying our main concern should be the well-being of our brothers and sisters, not if we come across looking super spiritual. He even says, you could even speak in languages that only angels know. Nobody is quite sure what exactly that phrase means. But I think it's just hyperbole. He's like, you could unlock some secret, amazing, super spiritual language. But guess what? If you don't love the people you're talking to, it is, he says, like a clanging cymbal. Now, why does he give that illustration? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? Um, Can I confess something to you? I love drums. Love it. Uh, I'm a guitar player. I started playing guitar when I was 13 in order to try to get girls. Uh, I don't know if that worked out for me incredibly well because uh, I was also kind of nerdy, right? But, but sometimes I wish I could rewind my life and at 13 be a drummer, right? Something amazing about drums. But here's the thing about a cymbal. Uh, Chris, don't get mad at me, right? That's awesome as an accent, right? But it doesn't play the melody of the song. I could hit this in perfect time over and over and over again, and then I could look at you and go like, what song is that? And you would go, what? Right? That makes zero sense. 
The point that Paul is trying to make isn't that tongues are bad. We see in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit shows up, people start speaking in other language, and thousands of people come to know Jesus. Obviously, that's good. His point is, when it's self-seeking, it's just like hitting a cymbal but missing on the melody, the main idea. It is just creating noise without, he says, the actual motivation for what we do when we gather together, that's love. Without love or without the melody, it's meaningless. It's like a body without a beating heart. It's like a crash cymbal hit over and over again without the melody to the song, which causes us at a church where people don't often speak in tongues in worship or have never, to ask this question that's incredibly important. The question is, am I here to draw attention to myself? That's the question behind this. Am I here to draw attention to myself? Am I all big splash but no heart? Then verse two, he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. A prophet is someone who God reveals truth to so they can instruct or challenge others. This one's a little shocking, right? Paul says here, a person could have a special revelation from God and yet... It would amount to nothing because they don't love. A person could have a deep understanding of the things of God, and yet he says what? I am nothing if I do not have love. Think about for a moment the force of that statement. You and I could know the Bible backward and forwards. We could have a grasp of deep theological truths, and yet if we don't love, then those things, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are useless and meaningless. There is a way, of course, we can use our knowledge and understanding in a loving way to help people. There's also a way we can use it not for other people, but for ourselves. Knowledge and understanding can puff us up. It can make us resentful of others. It can make us look down on others who don't know as much as us. And the point is not don't strive to know the Bible or understand theology. The point is love is what animates us to use that understanding for the well-being of each other. And without it, we can't have a healthy community. So are we motivated to know God because we love God? Are we motivated to break open the scriptures and learn about Jesus because we want to love him better? Because we want to serve each other? Or do we long for understanding so we can just seem real smart? Even more shocking, verse 2, he says, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Think about what he just said. A person can trust God to the point that God moves mountains through them or for them, and yet if they do not have love, he says it is nothing. It amounts to nothing. I can use, he's saying, even something as good as our faith in God in order to draw attention to ourselves. That we can have pride and be puffed up even in great faith. That's wild. 
But what's the point? His point is the way that we uh, prevent our faith from amounting to nothing is not by refusing to exercise faith, but by love. Self-giving, agape, others-focused love. Verse 3 says, if I give all I have away and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He says, you and I could be exceedingly generous. We could give everything we have away. You and I could even be sacrificial, sacrificial to the point of giving our own lives. And yet, if we do that without this sort of agape, self-giving love, that it amounts to nothing. We know this to be true. How often does that thing happen inside of your heart where you want desperately other people to know how exceedingly generous and awesome you are, right? How often do we respond? We go, man, they don't know how much I give to the church. If they knew how much I gave, nobody would have this conversation with me. How often do we think, you don't know how much I've sacrificed in my life. If you just knew how much I sacrificed in my life, you would be praising me right now. You see how subtle this can be in our own hearts? But Paul says what gives meaning to our giving and sacrifices isn't when others know and give us attention or praise. What gives meaning to it is when we love, when we do it motivated for the good of the people around us and for the very glory of God. And so again, we're faced with this question. Do I do even good spiritual practices to draw attention to myself, or am I motivated out of a love for others? So it's love <clears throat> that provides meaning to our lives both individually and corporately, that fills our spiritual practices with meaning. It's love as individuals when we go to prayer, where we come to God out of a heart that loves him and wants to know him. That fills us with meaning. It is love that provides what we need when we engage with the scriptures, where we love to know what God has to say. It is love individually when we pursue a deeper knowledge that motivates us correctly to use that knowledge for the good of our community. It's love that gets meaning to us corporately as a church, that our corporate worship is about loving God and his people, that when we serve others, we serve for their good, that we live on mission when we serve like yesterday at Dow Elementary School. We're doing that out of a heart of love, not to prove ourselves in some way. It is love then that motivates us. Uh, it's a lot like parenting. We've got some parents here, right? All of our young adults are, <clears throat> uh, whenever we, Sometimes, not whenever, sometimes when we talk, they're like, roll it, they always roll their eyes. They're like, dude, you just do parenting stuff, man. We don't know what you're talking about. But, but in a parenting relationship, a, parenting, a parent could get everything right. Provision for their kids, check. It's dinner on the table every night. We started a college fund, right? A parent could get safety, right? Check. Protect my family a safe home to live in. We send our kids to a great school. They can even get some of the relationship stuff right. We have dinner together as a family four nights a week. But if accompanying dinner is a cold, lifeless conversation, it doesn't mean a lot, right? 
If the college fund is sending your kid off to school, but they don't know they are loved, it doesn't mean a lot. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in this text. You can be a church. We can be a church that gets everything right. I mean, we get knowledge right. We get theology right. We get faith right. We get our exciting, energetic worship experience. We get it right. We get giving right, we get sacrifice right, we get serving the community right, but if we don't love, it is like sitting around a dinner table where nobody talks to each other. If we don't get love right, it is like sending your kid to college, but your kid doesn't know that he or she is loved. And saying that's why this is so important. If we get the practices right, but the heart wrong, we still get it wrong. Let me say it one more time. If we get the practices right, but the heart wrong, we still get it wrong. Why is this so important? In John chapter 13, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, this is what he says to his disciples. Check this out. Verses 34 and 35. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Look at this phrase, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The instruction for us to love one another is rooted in what? An unbelievable reality that we have been loved by Christ. Jesus says you should love one another. Why? Because I loved you. How do we love one another? The same way Jesus loved us. Well, how did Jesus love us? It's not abstractly. Jesus didn't love us from a distance. Jesus didn't love us in word only. Jesus loved us in person. That's part of the gospel story that God himself came and walked among us. He didn't stay at a distance, he came near. And not just in word, he could have sent another messenger, but he came himself. And loved us indeed. Poems, 1 Corinthians 13, can stir up emotions. It can be shareable on Instagram. Man, but poems are just an expression of love. They're not the act itself often. So what happens in Jesus' coming is he's putting flesh on the poetry. That he's putting a person to the word. And so Jesus comes and loves us. That's why when you read the gospels, it's just Jesus's life. Over and over again, you get this picture of Jesus as unbelievably loving. And then after this conversation with his disciples, Jesus definitively showed his love. By his death on the cross for us in our place, his resurrection. That's why this is so important. Because disciples of Jesus love like Jesus. And how does Jesus love? Unconditionally, the well being of the other person is the object of his affection. Jesus' love is sacrificial for others. So we sang earlier, for our sake. And so this command to love each other is really just a simple command 
for us to be Jesus people, to extend to others what we have so graciously received from Christ. So today, if you don't know Christ, I just want you to know uh, that you are loved. That the center part of the story of the Christian faith is Jesus' death and resurrection and the motivating or what animated his death for you in your place is his love for you. You can find in your life all sorts of systems of belief. You can find all sorts of religions. You can find all sorts of life advice. You can find all sorts of hacks to a better version of you. But there is only one place you find where God himself sacrificed himself out of love for his people. There's one place. There's only one story like that in the whole world, and that's the story of Jesus. And if you don't know Christ today, if this story hasn't found its way into your heart, let me just encourage you, consider Jesus. Consider how different this story is, that God himself would come in person, not only to teach you, but to die for you in your place to take the punishment that you and I deserve for us in our place, to draw us into a loving relationship with God. So today, if you don't know Christ, maybe today is the day where you come to faith in Jesus, knowing that you are unbelievably well-loved by him. Secondly, a question we have to ask for us at Mercy Hill Church is, is this type of love characteristic of our congregation? Is this us? Are we here for show? Are we here for attention seeking? Are we here to establish a certain sort of reputation? Are we here for ourselves? Or are we the type of church that loves well because we have been loved well by Christ? And it's important for each one of us to ask this question. Am I motivated by this love? Love is vital. For us to have a healthy and vibrant church, vital. We have to have it. Then finally, I love this idea from John 13. Jesus says, you know how people are going to know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. See, it is our love for each other that declares to the people around us in our community who we are and who we belong to. Which means the more we love each other well here, the more attractive we're going to be to people who aren't here yet. You know the best thing you can do for your unbelieving neighbors and friends? One of the best things you can do is just simply invite them into a loving community so they can see, oh, oh, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. This is what it's like to belong to him. Tangible expression of that love. So if you don't know Jesus today, our invitation is to come to know Jesus. You are well-loved. Well-loved. For our church today, if you're a believer or follower of Jesus, the question is, are we loving each other well? And are you doing that in a way that's attractive to the community outside of us? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.